The book of Lamentations is, without question, one of the most brilliantly constructed poems ever written. It has a collection of five different poems. The first four are all alphabetically acrostic. That is, they begin with uh, the successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, the Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters, and chapters 1, 2, and 4 all have 22 verses, each verse beginning with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The final uh, song or poem in the collection of five also has 22 verses, but is not alphabetically arranged. The only v chapter or poem that has more than 22 verses is chapter three, the middle chapter, and that has 66 verses. Three verses for every letter of the Hebrew alphabet working one letter after the other. Now you miss all that in English. But just to let you feel or to sense the incredible beauty, symmetry, cadence of the entire book of Lamentations. 22 verses, 22 verses, 66 in the middle, 22 verses, 22 verses. One of the most beautifully written poems of all time. And yet, it describes one of the most, perhaps the most devastating tragedy, crisis of all times in the history of Israel, the time when the city of Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple was crushed, and the citizens of God were captured and taken to a foreign land. In fact, worse than that, many of the women were raped. They were living among the rats and the rubble and the rotting garbage of Jerusalem. The living were envying the dead, wishing they could have been among them. I mean, imagine. Imagine your hometown, the town you grew up in, lying in ruins, being a war zone today. Uh, God forbid that it should ever happen, but imagine the city of, of Atlanta lying in, in ruins. Imagine our overpasses collapsed on the road and nothing but rubble on the highway beneath. Imagine the streets of Atlanta with people all living homeless. Uh, living among the, the rats and the ruin of Atlanta. Nothing but debris. A mere shadow of her former glory. That is the context for the writing of this poem. You come to chapter 1, 22 verses. It is the poem of Jerusalem's desolation. Chapter 2 
is the poem of Jehovah's chastening, the discipline of the Lord. Then in the middle, this longest, three times longer than any other of the poems, it's the people of God in the middle of all the ruin crying out to God. Chapter 4 is the sin that is the cause for the ruin and lamenting the sin. And then the final, chapter 5, is the cry for help. Jeremiah was a man of prayer. And every chapter except for chapter 4 ends with a prayer. And often throughout the chapter, prayer will spring out and burst forth in the middle of the desolation. Perhaps the most shocking part of this book is that Jeremiah, who had for 30 years predicted exactly what happened, he was the only prophet still preaching when Jerusalem fell. Now he's writing this book of lament and sorrow, giving the most crystal clear expression of the raw, dry, heaving grief. Does so without a ripple of I told you so. There isn't one word of self-pity. Not once do we see him distance himself from the suffering as if I told you this was going to happen. Don't blame me. He's still all in. What made it even worse and what makes his ability at this moment to write from a pure heart without any complaint or placing blame on anyone else is that through his entire ministry of these 30 years that preceded it, of him preaching, he was stoned, he was beaten with rods, he was evicted from his own home, he was labeled a false prophet. All the other prophets were saying, ah, peace be with you, nothing's going to happen, we're the people of God, we can expect the blessing of God, God's not going to take away our land from us. Everyone else was, was mocking Him, and now His vindication has happened. But He never savors the vindication. He never for a moment takes satisfaction in the destruction of Israel. This book is in itself a monument, a testament of the way a true person of God responds when the judgments of God begin falling in the land. Now, it is also a useful book of compassion and expression of grief righteously for all those who have lost a child, who have suffered a miscarriage, gone through a divorce, are in the middle of severe testing and trial, this book is for you. But before we really sink our teeth into it, I need to position the book of Lamentations properly. I want to make a social 
commentary on the day we're living in. We in our country don't like groaning. We are not good at grief and suffering. We like our comforts. We like our freedoms, but we like our comforts more. We like our optimism, even when our optimism is unable to cope with reality. We'd still rather live in deception and have our optimism than face the facts. I want to tell you something. This is not a popular message, but I need to tell you something. The Bible promises that toward the end of history, there are going to come times of groaning all over the world. This is that time in my lifetime. In my whole lifetime, we have never had worldwide groaning like we do today. Oh, you can start with the economy. You can bring in the Occupy movement. What's up with that? You know what's up with that? It's groaning. It's an evidence of groaning. There's discontent. You can mock them, you can uh, marginalize them, but they represent their view of reality. And it's not pretty. Oh, bring in the Arab world. Whoever thought you would live to see Gaddafi evicted within his own country and Syria in the uprising that it's in and marches in the street of Arab nations that are supposed to have an upper hand on all those things. What is that? It's groaning. The whole Arab world is groaning. And then bring in Iran, North Korea, China, global economy, AIDS issues. Oh, you can pile it on. It's one groaning after another. We are living in the fulfillment of Romans chapter 8, which says, All creation is groaning in travail until Christ is revealed and those who are truly followers of Christ are revealed with Him. We are in the middle of groaning. I want to have you on the edge of your seat listening to the book of Lamentations because this book, folks, is for us. It's more relevant than perhaps any of the other prophets for us. I truly believe that. It's only the beginning. Now, those of you that know me, you know I'm an optimist. You know that I, I hope in God. You know that uh, I... My sights are on uh, the positive, and I always preach the positive from the Word of God, and we're going to get to the positive. But the fact of the matter is, we hardly ever hear anything about groaning. When we're with people that are groaning, we want to get away from them. We as a culture don't know how to groan. God's been putting groaning into my prayer life, and for a while I started dismissing it. I'm thankful God still gives the gift of tongues. So you can pray with groaning. 
And if you don't have the gift of tongues, you can still groan. You don't always need words. You just groan. But you want to give expression to, to groaning. That's what the book of Lamentations is for, so that we can groan with the Word of God and righteously appeal to the God of the universe in the middle of the groaning. The book of Lamentations is brilliant. But the reason it's brilliant is not just the literary structure of the poem that is brilliant. It's beautiful. Everything about it is perfect. But what makes it so beautiful is that it was written from a pure heart in the middle of the dry heaves of grief, giving righteous expression to the one true God in the middle of that grief. Now, you can find a lot of songs on the radio and a lot of poems in history, Edgar Allan Poe and others, who can express grief well, but unrighteously. Oh, they can get a handle on grief and they can they can wallow in grief and they can express it well, but it's godless grief. It's grief that has no hope. It's grief that only finds uh, fulfillment in the grave. When it's all over, then there's going to be peace. Oh, the Lam- Lamentations does way better than that. It deals with grief every bit as real as anything you'll read outside of the Bible. But it does it righteously. In the book of Lamentations, if you have you ever... Uh, oh, this will be fun. Have you ever eaten oysters? Okay. Has anyone in the room ever eaten an oyster? Really? Okay. Now, how many of you enjoy the process? Fan- oh, I gotta look around. I gotta see who you are. And, wow, that's incredible. Really? This is, oh, keep your hands up. I've gotta see this. I've gotta see that. This is fun. Oh, it's okay. All right. This is incredible. The slimy, the, the going, <laughs> do you put the uh, cocktail sauce? Oh, Art and Linda. A lot, lots. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta lubricate those bad boys. Richard, oh, Richard. That's, oh, horseradish. There you go. That's incredible. Okay, now, there is a point to this. There is a point. The whole book of Lamentations is like an oyster. Oyster half shells. This ugly, gross, but real, raw, it's raw. Perfect. Oysters are raw. It's perfect. And in the middle, there's this huge, incredible pearl that's three times as long as any of the other chapters. Two on either side. But in the middle, chapter 3 has... Sixty-six verses, and it's a pearl. It glistens. Let's just check it out. Verse 1. I am the man who has seen affliction. Verse 4. He has made my skin and my flesh grow old and has broken my bones. Verse 5. Bitterness and hardship. Verse 6. 
He has made me dwell in darkness like those long dead. Verse 7, He has weighed me down with chains. Verse 8, He shuts out my prayer. You're saying, where's the pearl? We're going to get to the pearl, but the pearl is inside that slimy, gross animal. So we're we're working our way through it. Just, just, Just give us a second. We're getting there. Verse 8, he shuts out my prayer. Can you imagine? This man of prayer, now God's shutting him out. Verse 12, he drew his bow and made me the target for his arrows. I mean, that's kind of gross, but you get the picture. I mean, this is brilliant. This is vivid. It's raw. Verse 13, He pierced my heart. Verse 16. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has trampled me in the dust. Verse 19. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. Verse 20. My soul is downcast within me. Now that's that gooey, slimy animal that a bunch of you guys like eating. With your horseradish and a little cocktail sauce. When you fast, you savor every, every idea you get of food. It's all good. Just give me a second. Now. Now. Now we pop out of that animal's belly a pearl. Verse 21 is the hinge. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Remember, Jeremiah is the prophet of hope. The single prophet who prophesied during the most dismal situation is the one who has the most hope. It's because until we come to the end of our own human optimism, until we realize we can't put a spin on this situation, we realize that there is no hope apart from the one who himself is hope that we can tap into what really hope is all about. And then, verse 22, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for Him. The Lord is good to those who, whose hope is in Him, in the One who seeks Him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. Verse 32, Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. Verse 49, my eyes will flow unceasingly without relief until the Lord looks down from heaven and sees. Verse 55, I call on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You herald my, you heard my plea. Do not close your ears to my cry for relief. You came near when I called. You said, do not fear. The Lord took up my case. 
You redeemed my life. There's the pearl. In the middle of gut-wrenching grief. The pearl. There's five things I just want to highlight. And if you'd like, you can fill in the blanks in your notes inside under Live This Book. How did Jeremiah survive the storm the same way we can survive the storm? Number one, he was tethered not to his circumstances. He was tethered to God. He reflects here in verse 22 and 23. Your great love, your compassion, your faithfulness. Praise God. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. You will have groaning. But groaning, when the groaning begins, when everything that can be shaken is shaken, God will then reveal the kingdom to us that cannot be shaken. No, whatever, if you're tethered, Today, if you're tethered to anything other than God Himself, whatever you're tethered to is going to be shaken, I can guarantee you. These are days of shaking. There's a whole lot of shaking going on. Days of shaking, days of groaning, days of travail, and it's only begun. The shaking happens so that we put our hope in what cannot be shaken. The second thing we learn here. This is so vital for those of us who have suffered on a personal level. When we suffer, one of the first lies the devil comes and puts in our head is, is um, I deserve better. I deserve better. What Jeremiah said when he was suffering, he said, verse 22, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. What's the, what he's saying is, even though we got it bad, we got it better than we deserve. That's what he's saying. The fact of the matter is, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the second fact of the matter is, the wages of sin is death. So the fact that any of us are still alive is the mercy of God. No, we don't deserve. You can't come to God and say, I deserve. I deserve better than this. Let me take it from the personal to the national. We've, this is an election year. We're a multicultural congregation. And part of the beauty of that is we get to celebrate the fact that blacks and whites can worship together. That all the nations are treated equally in the sight of God. And it also means that in Christ there is neither Republican nor Democrat. Now, if you have um, your favorite candidate on your bumper... Don't, don't apologize. Praise God for it. You can lobby for Him as, all you, all, all, as long as you want. 
But if there's any hatred in your heart towards somebody of the other party, you got to deal with that. There are some who are dear to me who have serious problems with our current president. I just want to say a few things. Oh, now we got high attention in the room. I, I can feel we're, we're peaked with anticipation. You know what I say at the end of every election, no matter who I voted for, and I believe this is true, we're going to get what we deserve. That means we got what we deserve. No matter what your political views are, I'm not putting President Obama down, I'm not lifting him up, I'm just saying it's true. I totally believe that. In fact, the fact of the matter is we got way better than we deserve. It's true. No, we are living in a day when our country is already under the wrath of God. There's no question about that. Romans chapter 1 says that God gives us up. When we have our heads strong and go our own way, God gives us up. God gives us up. I'm tempted to stay on this, but I'm going to move on. I'm just going to move on. No, we may have it bad, but we got it way better than we deserve. It's only because of God's compassion that we are not all consumed. The third thing we learn here is from verse 41. Let us lift up our hearts and our hands to God and say, we have sinned and rebelled and you have not forgiven. Jeremiah number three always grew through the discipline of the Lord. He always allowed the rebukes and chastisements of circumstances to draw him closer to God. Now, let me say clearly, not all suffering is by any means the result of sin. But nationally, it usually is. And on the global level, on the national level, we need to submit to the disciplines on our nation in repentance. And say like the other prophets said, in wrath, remember mercy. That is what Jeremiah is saying right here. Some of our members shared earlier about the past three days at Salem Missionary Baptist Church. The church has celebrated their 175th anniversary. And it was so incredible. You remember the words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who said, On the red clay of Georgia, the sons of former slave owners and the sons of former slaves will sit down at the table of brotherhood. And we had three days at the table of brotherhood, and it was magnificent. We were not judging each other by the color of our skin, but by the character uh, and our conduct. And, and it was a beautiful time in Salem. And while we were there, they shared the history of the place. And these... Uh, as was mentioned, we were told of how the plantation owner who previously owned the land, going back over well over a hundred years, 
150 years ago, gave that land to be used for the church, for slaves, on the very ground. He told that in the attic just 50 years ago, his grandfather found in the attic a whole wad of TNT. The fuse had been burned down, but it didn't go off. It was placed there to blow up the place, and it never went off. God spared him. And then after telling a bunch of stories like that, he said, and I am the great-great-grandson of those slaves. It just took everybody like sucking the oxygen out of the room to, to realize that he was there telling the story. Pastor Haynes shared of how when he was a boy, he shared this with us privately. His next door neighbor was a poor white family and he loved playing with their kids. His best friend was white. But one day when the boy got old enough to go to school, he wouldn't talk with him anymore. Nothing. He'd go up and try to talk and the boy would look away. They were walking down the street and he saw the family and went up, running up to say hi to the boy and the father grabbed the boy's hand and said, come on. Like he was ashamed to be seen in public with his son talking to a black boy. Pastor Haynes said his mother took him to the doctor one day up in Gainesville and they got there early and then when the white family came, him and his mom were put in the broom closet of the doctor's office. And they waited there eight hours until the last appointment was seen. And then they were brought out. But the beauty of the story is there's no bitterness. There's no hatred. He's just telling the facts but from a heart of mercy that looks beyond the color of my skin. And He loves me. And their people love us as a congregation. That's a miracle. It's very similar to the miracle here. We can separate the sin from the person and confess the sin and move on. And we're able to do that. That's the righteous way to suffer that they modeled so well, as does Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah never lost a grip on the promises of God. Point number four. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in Him. To the one who seeks Him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. Good, good, good. God is good all the time, even when the circumstances are not. No, in fact, the bright, brilliant, huge pearl of promises bundled up in the middle of This oyster called the Book of Lamentations is some of the richest, strongest promises and how much more weight they carry because they come through suffering. If you remember, a 
pearl is made when a debris gets inside the oyster. And when the suffering comes, it gives all of us the opportunity to grow the pearl of character around the promises of God. The final thing we learn here is you would think once it fell, he would think, oh, my prayers and my ministry is over. It's all over. The the city has fallen. The, the, The people are carted away. The women have been raped. The children wish they weren't even alive. We're we're scrapping to find food enough to keep from starving. But point number five is Jeremiah never quit praying. He persevered. He was steadfast. But his prayer life changed. There was a new tear in his prayer. There was deeper groaning in his prayer. And brothers and sisters, if your prayer life has not graduated into this season of your life, you need to move on. God wants to give you new prayers that you've never prayed before. The circumstances in our world are changing. And our prayer lives need to change as well. And Jeremiah said, there will never be a day when I'm not praying. I'm going to pray through it all. I'm going to, I've learned to cry when I pray. I'm not going to stop crying when I pray. And there in Romans chapter 8 is that incredible groaning, the whole creation. And then in the middle of this groaning, we come to verse 26. And it says, The Spirit helps us in our groaning. Because we don't know how to pray as we ought. But the Spirit prays through us with groans too deep for words. Whether or not you have the gift of tongues, God wants you to pray in the Spirit. He can put within you groanings. I've walked a lot of parents through deep waters with their children. And Sherry and I faced a season in our lives where God imparted to us the ministry of groaning. I came home one day because one of our kids had done something horrible. And I just took him by the hand and we went in a a room just by ourselves and all I did for... Two hours was groan. I just groaned until my spirit touched the spirit of our child. Just groan. I asked God to help me. He didn't give me any words. I just groaned. There's times when we've faced health crisis in my family. When I didn't know how to pray, all I could do was groan. God wants to restore groaning. Righteous groaning. It's way different than belly aching. Belly aching is lamenting in our own sorrows. It's godless. There's nothing righteous. There's nothing redemptive. 
But when we are tethered to God, when we realize as bad as it is, it's better than we deserve. When we refuse to let go of the promises of God, when we grow through the disciplines of God, and we keep on praying, God will give us a whole new wave of prayer and of His presence. Praise God. Take a lesson from the book of Lamentations. If you're not there today, save it up for a rainy day. Because it's full of not just brilliantly written, but shining testimony for all of us in the dark, difficult times of life. Let's pray together.